Notes Queer Musicology Podcast. You're listening to episode three, and I'm George Haggett. This week we have a guest host, my dear friend Jam Oral. Jam is a committee member of the LGBTQ Music Studies Group and has just completed a master's at the Royal Academy of Music. She's a professional historical violist and researches transness in classical music. In this episode, Jam interviews CN Lester. CN Lester works internationally as a trans and feminist educator and speaker and curates the trans art event Transpose for Barbican. Their first book, Trans Like Me, has been named one of the three essential works on trans issues by the New York Times. They're a singer-songwriter and classical singer, as well as a composer and researcher. CN specialises in early and modern music, particularly by women composers, and at the time of this interview, they'd just handed in their PhD thesis on the life and work of Barbara Strozzi, supervised by Lisa Colton. Like many trans people of our generation, especially trans classical musicians, Jam and I have both been really influenced by CN's work, so I think it's fair to say that we were pretty keen to meet them and hear more. Well, hi, Sian. <laughs> hi. hi. I mean, wow, we, we haven't said hi yeah, yet. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, to talk a bit about your research. So, um, it's really um, a sort of re-evaluation of Barbara Strozzi and her life and mm. her music and how we interpret her today. Mm-hmm. And I suppose a lot of that is because... And you mentioned a few of these books within your thesis who've sort of picked her out as, you know, one of the women that we mm. sort of go, oh, well, she was exceptional. You know, she's, yeah. she's the, the exception to the rule. Mm. Um, but I, I'd love to know what was the inspiration behind starting this project? <laughs> I wish I could give you a better answer than this, but it's spite. It was spite and it was anger. Um, <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's fun. And I do talk about this in the sort of in the thesis and I you know I, I realize in one respect you know as a, as a trans masculine person as a genderqueer person maybe you know it seems odd to research women composers in particular and certainly as a teenager growing up I started composing my, my piano teachers encouraged me very young and I never felt a weight where I couldn't compose I think I you know it just didn't seem you know not knowing myself as a woman not feeling or understanding myself as female I didn't really have any pressure there you know I suddenly encountered later pressure with with misogyny with people who didn't care how I saw myself they saw me a certain way um but there felt like no barrier between me and wanting to be obviously as a kid wanting to be the next Beethoven because you know why not why not aim high when you're very young and very naive but it really pissed me off that we didn't do any women composers at school. I mean, that was quite clearly like the most obvious gap. Mm. You know, having been very interested in feminism very young and, and certainly coming from a household where everything else we were doing had a balance of women and men, then suddenly turning up at school and the GCSE is all white men, all dead white men usually. And I asked my school teacher why that was, and he said, oh, there are no women composers. And I said, what? And he said, oh, well, there were some, but they were all terrible. And as an undergraduate, I studied with Sylvina Milstein uh, at King's as my composition teacher, but we never studied any music by women composers. We didn't even study her works, which was very strange. Mm. Um, And then all the way through my master's program, didn't do a single work by a woman composer, and I just lost it. (laughs) And I Mm. went to the library, 
And I thought, well, I want to sing something. And Strozzi came up and I took it home. It was the Gale Archer edition of Opus 3. And started singing these pieces and thought, holy fuck, this is unbelievable. I want to sing this all the time. So I started singing it lots and um, kept performing it with early music ensembles and, and sort of kept up the research on the side. And my friend Sarah said, well, why aren't you doing a PhD on this? You're already researching it. And through her, I met Lisa Colton, my supervisor at Huddersfield. And it just felt like a really great match and a really good way of for better or worse, you know, it's useful to... It's not rubber stamping to get a PhD, but you know what I mean. It's a way of sort of legitimizing research and also having it rigorously tested by, by other academics that you trust and to have the tools and the wisdom to help you through it. And mm. So I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. That was five years ago, and it was meant to be three years, and then Translate Me happened. And <laughs> so, um, but yeah, spite. Furious anger was the the first reason, yeah. and then you know the more I researched Strozzi, the more I saw the ways in which she was included or was treated, were in themselves so incredibly problematic. You know this idea, oh, you know, look, we've included, we've got three women composers on International Women's Day. What are you complaining about? Oh, and we're going to talk about them in this incredibly misogynistic framework, and we're never going to challenge the framework. Aren't we doing enough? I mean, one of the one of the main ways in which women composers are treated pedagogically uh, and in terms of performance and marketing of performance in particular is as exceptional women. And the minute, of course, you start looking at the background of any of these women, you start to see that they're not exceptional. And, and by that, I mean not that they're not incredibly talented and hardworking, but they are not these strange outlying figures. So looking at Strozzi's sort of era, the Seicento sort of Venice, there was a huge, huge birth of feminist thought at that point. You know, there were so many feminist writers, you know, in this tiny, small island. Um, you know, the proportion of feminist thinkers that they put forward was really quite extraordinary, but so many women music makers as well. And our concept of Strozzi as this lone figure, and you know, the way that that sophistry is repeated and repeated over and again, you know, you see frequently Strozzi was the first woman to have her name in print. No, she wasn't. She was one of the first. No, she wasn't. <laughs> um, you know, it was remarkable that any woman could be printed. No, it wasn't. And it's, it doesn't mean that the misogyny wasn't there, but it certainly means that people didn't just roll over and die and so sort of, it, it completely erases the courage and the resourcefulness of these women and mm. it completely flattens what was actually happening so that we can put forward our own stereotypes um, and as you may be able to tell that just makes me angry it just, <laughs> I don't like inaccuracy mm. and I don't like pretension to know when we just don't um, and again I think it's a marketing tool to to portray one woman composer as soul and singular paints her as an aberration and it paints her as a proof that the rule which says women cannot compose is true. Uh, a lot of the problem is that, again, you know, something which is very important to think about is canons and canonicity. If the music is not deemed to be important enough, it's not researched and you haven't got modern performing editions, you might not even have facsimiles, you might not have even microfilm or photographs of the original, or they might have survived. I mean, there's so much which hasn't survived. Um, but I have a huge folder on my computer. Every you know, every time I sort of found a new name, it was sort of oh, I want to find out her music as well. Oh my god! And this is just within the hundred years around Strozzi's lifetime, just in Italy. Um, but there's so much you can't find. You have to go to Italy to the archives to find it. No one's done the work. Yeah. So. 
people are. I'm hoping, you know, we won't have this conversation in 50 years' time, but mm. it does need attention and it needs active, um, active fixing. You you mentioned before the um, the exceptional woman Mm. trope, which um, is often used as a marketing tool, but I think also within academia as well, we're we're very Mm. um, guilty of doing this to historical women in music. Mm. Um, And in the thesis, you also mentioned the embodied woman, which Mm. is another one which is quite linked to Strozzi being um, a singer composer. Mm. I mean, I I find the the embodied question it's so interesting. Maybe. Well, they're, they're both so interesting, but they they are so starkly demarcated by binary concepts of gender, and it's so obvious. It it actually frightens me that we keep perpetuating them when it's so obvious. So the maybe again, I found this as I you know I trained as a pianist, and found that a very easy place to sit in. You know, you you play piano, and it's a hugely embodied instrument. I mean, it, my God, the work you put into that, but it never gets treated, or certainly you know so how I experienced it, it was seen as intellectual, it was seen as pure, it's very much, you know, I'm going to play, I'm going to sit here and play Shostakovich, I'm going to sit here and play Stravinsky, and I'm going to think about, you know, these incredible harmonies, and and everything is brain, 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 and even if you're pouring with sweat and everything hurts, it's brain, brain, brain. And then when I changed to being a singer, what was very interesting to me was the way that people automatically treated me as less intelligent. and yeah. or the number of times I've been told by people, oh, but you're not like a singer because you're smart, <laughs> and you think, oh, this is interesting. Mm. And this concept that I was no longer making music, which was intellectual, but it was like an outpouring. And of course, all music is an outpouring. All music is important. You know, I don't understand. You know, unless you're crafting music through computer programs that that can work specifically on brain function. I mean, that, but that's physical. You know, it, it's a very weird dichotomy that we put ourselves in. Um, but the specific gendering of women as embodied, as, as both composers and performers, it's linked to instrument choice. Um, so very frequently it's linked to the idea of a singer. But again, we don't talk about Monteverdi the singer. We don't talk about Cavalli the singer, even though both were virtuoso singers and both were singer-composers, certainly at the beginning of their careers. We just don't mention it in the same way, but Strozzi is always a singer, and she's always a singer before she's a composer, despite the fact that this category of singer-composer encompasses so much of what was happening in in music at that point, and was an instrumentalist also. Again, we say singer-composer, but we never say singer-instrumentalist-composer. We never talk about the fact that she was clearly a very gifted instrumentalist, and she was known to be such. Um, you know, some of her music looks very likely to have been written for Theorbo. Um, the satire written against the Unisoni talks about her playing a spinet. Um, again, it's the gender demarcation between body and brain, between sort of bass and elevated. And it's that <sighs> thinking of the ways in which we talked about sort of Fanny Hensel and Clara, Sch- uh, Clara Schumann. And Alma Mahler's songs, for that matter, mm. it's always constra- it's personal. It's very small. It's very this is a feeling that I had, so I sang it. And and you know, ultimately, in some of these representations, the women are talked about as though they are literally just songbirds, or sometimes as if they're like I don't know, some kind of dog in heat. It, it's really visceral, and it's incredibly patronizing. It's almost you know, my friends and I joke because I get really grouchy about my research, there's a portrait which may or may not be of Barbara Strozzi. She was painted by Bernardo Strozzi, as far as we know from a receipt, but we don't know what painting that was, if it's even survived. 
there is one painting which has come forward as a likely likely candidate um, and the focus on the embodied figure in that painting and what that figure means is absolutely extraordinary. There was um, an article in New Statesman where they chopped the head off the picture and they chopped her hands off and they only showed the breasts in the picture, nothing else. Wow. And so, of course, my friends and I always joke, you know, are you doing some strozzi today? Like, yeah, yeah, you know, she got her boobs out, she was dipping it in the ink, doing a little <laughs> bit of composing. But they, they treat, it's unbelievable. I mean, sometimes you honestly think they're just, you know, this lady composer writing with her lady brain took her lady vagina for a walk. It's, it's just such an obvious double standard. And it, you know, it's not that embodiment doesn't matter as musicians. It's fascinating and important. And I love it as a subject, but we have to get away from this duality of brain versus body and brain is man, body is woman. Mm. It's, it's bullshit. Um, and I think you, you're earlier than point about the virgin whore dichotomy. It, it's so full of a lack of feminist awareness, even from the feminist texts at the time, which you know were so much more radical in some ways, certainly not in all ways, but in talking about sex work and talking about marriage and religious enclosure and so many of the Venetian feminist writers saying why do you say that marriage is more virtuous than being a courtesan? Um, she wrote a volume of religious music, which is some of her best work. It's absolutely stunning. And in the common framing, it's Strozzi was a courtesan. And the number of people who then approach the Opus 5 and say, well, how could she have written it? You're thinking, really? Mm. I mean, I don't know with her hands. Maybe, you know, <laughs> what, what the hell do you mean? Mm. It's. Um... Um, I'd be interested to know if you feel this was the current state with feminist musicology do you feel that we're still kind of trying to grapple with the kind of the woman behind the note from my perspective it still feels like a lot is happening in like bits and pieces and Mm. so i find it hard to talk about feminist musicology as a whole because i can talk about some researchers that i know and that i've worked with but then there's so much out there which i haven't read or i'm not connected to i feel sometimes that our networks are not very well developed or well maintained um, so I think a lot of the research itself is actually grappling with, with issues sort of way beyond sort of representation or way beyond just inclusion, but that just doesn't filter through to mainstream programming. So, it, you know, we might well see that in a conference or hear a conference paper about that. But if you put Radio 3 on, you're not going to get that same level. So I think we still have, you know, who was the woman behind the notes? And it will always be, again, you know, this exceptional figure and little mm-hmm. isn't it? And I mean, I do feel there is an enormous discrepancy between these pockets of academia, which are more progressive, um, seem to have more an account of their own history and to have actually worked with the changes and challenges of the last 30 or 40 years. And classical performance culture, particularly sort of mainstream performance spaces, organisations and and groups, who still sometimes feel stuck in the 19th century idea of the canon and the greats, with very little to change that. I suppose the big question that kind of dominates a lot of the thesis is, was Strozzi a sex worker? Mm -hmm. Like like we mentioned, it's it's kind of part of the myth that's been created around her in that kind of... um, overt sensuality to her music Mm. and to her person and the imagery that we have of her Mm. and now at the end of your thesis how would you respond to that question i think the best thing with that question to do is say why are we asking and what are we trying to gain Mm. so there is nothing wrong obviously in fact there are many things right trying to, to situate a composer in their own life we want to understand 
the conditions that, that led to the creation of their music or hindered the creation of the music or maybe were irrelevant. We, you know, we won't know until we look, and that's all hugely important. But the question, was Strozzi a courtesan, is never asked in that context, or at least it hasn't been asked in that context for quite a while. The early question came in Roseanne's 1978 work um, and was asked genuinely as a question. And unfortunately, the people who picked, sort of picked it up and ran with it, instead of interrogating it as a question, as a piece of research, fed into these myths around sex work, this idea of, you know, the sumptuous woman, the exoticized woman, um, very much a sort of orientalist Venetian fantasy. So you have the the travel documents from English travelers, in particular traveling to Venice and sort of going on and about the sort of the scented, the scented harems of these women. And it's so yeah. orientalist and it's so, it's funny. And a sleight of hand often takes place in all of these sort of representations of Strozzi as we can't prove it, but we think she was, and we're going to treat it as if she was. Where, for example, the name of Veronica Franco will be brought up in relation to Strozzi, but at no point will Veronica Franco's actual work or her career be discussed in relation to Strozzi's work and career. So, you know, Veronica Franco, uh, her poetry and her letters are fascinating, they're really, really interesting. Um, but they won't be discussed. It will simply be Franco, courtesan, Strozzi, probable courtesan, and the names will be linked to sort of provide a kind of insinuation of evidence. And I think it's important to look at every composer in their sort of socio-sexual, economically sexual, sort of personally felt sexual relationship, but we just don't do that. We do that. Strozzi... I mean, I joke, it is literally like sort of sexy Strozzi, sensuous songs, <laughs> thrill audiences within. It's like, mm. oh my God. But again, at no point do we say, we don't introduce Brahms' violin concerto with Brahms, who most likely gave a lot of money to sex workers over the course of his life. Is he represented by his violin concerto? You know, mm. Robert Schumann, who was a client of sex workers, uh, you know, joins... Yeah. It, it's, it's completely bizarre. Um, and it... I mean, one of the things I always think about is, you know, dear God, you know, you're going to have people in your classes, uh, you know, you're going to have grad students and undergraduates and possibly colleagues who are or have been sex workers, and you're writing as if, one, you know, all people who, there's a wonderful term in, in Venice at the time, was it was called carnal commerce, uh, and as many actual researchers in sex work of, of Venice at the time, say, you know, people didn't see that as an overriding characteristic. So mm. it, it was such a common thing to engage with, particularly with sort of sliding economic situations and with sort of when you'd have economic downturns, you'd have impacts of plagues, you would have families who sort of, you know, had to get by. And it might be a case that you would engage in carnal commerce at some point or not others. Um, it, it's big and it's complicated and it's interesting. We don't have any evidence that Strozzi was. And it's again, it's one of these difficult questions because there is so little we have on Strozzi. You could craft a narrative saying she probably was. Strozzi herself denied it. And for me, that is really important to, to put sort of front and center of any arguments. It feels wrong to study a composer and take her own words and say they don't matter as much as my insinuation. Um, but if she was, that would also be interesting. If she's not, that's interesting. It's all interesting mm. and might tell us something about economic culture in Venice. Again, might tell us something about performance practice. Maybe not, might do. 
Um, but you have to approach it as an actual research question rather than this titillating, um, you know, oh, was she a fallen woman? And, and the ways that she is described, they genuinely use phrases like fallen woman, even in research in the last five years. Wow. Yeah, immoral, fallen. Uh, it's, it's, no, mm. it's not great. Uh, and so I think, you know, why do we ask it? And I do think the reason we ask it is it further exceptionalizes her it makes her into an oddity and it makes her into a marketable oddity and crucially a marketable oddity that will always be female in a very like quintessentially you know she is a woman and we know she is a woman because she was for sex and that was her job as if being a sex worker would stop you from being any other number of things or again as if being a sex worker would have put you in a crucially different economic position from any of the other economic forces that played out on women's sexual lives, including enforced enclosure, including enforced marriage, including common law marriage, which in Venice was the most sort of common form of making relationships at certain points. And mm. it, it just speaks grossly of misogyny instead of an actual investigative drive to know more about a composer and to know more about why the music was crafted and how it might be performed and understood. Yeah. Um, and again, it always takes shots away from her music. That's what gets me. We have so much of her music left to us and so little else. And we spend all this time chasing shadows because it's salacious. But the music is right there, desperate to be performed, and it's so good. Mm. I just love it, and performing it just fills me with joy.
I find crucially difficult is I love singing and I also find it very hard. Mm. It's it's not I, I've always loved singing when I was a kid, but you know, my first my first instrument was piano and I had to stop playing piano because of a catastrophic wrist injury and, and so sort of ongoing surgery and ongoing um, problems with not being able to use my hand. So while I'd always wanted to sing and play at the same time and had been mad about singing, solely doing singing was a result of a traumatic injury and a traumatic sort of long-term process of, of surgeries and rehabilitations and further surgeries and further rehabilitations. But it's gendered, and that was really difficult. And, you know, certainly when I was coming out, you know, this is the point where I start feeling really old, but, you know, I came out 20 years ago, and when I, mean, I had it sitting on the shelf, where is it? Oh, did you ever read this one? The Body Alchemy book. No. Oh my god, this was huge. This okay. was such a huge. Did it come out at the end of the 90s or the beginning of the 2000s? Uh, uh, but by 1996, Lauren Cameron. Okay. So uh, it's trans masculine and trans man portraiture. It's so great and amazing. But James Green, what was it? I lost my singing voice once I was on hormones. And that was the first sentence in this book. I lost my singing voice once I was on hormones. And when I first started singing, you know, I'd been out as trans for a long time, and all the advice I was given was, in auditions, pretend not to be. So, you know, drag up for auditions, and then if you get the role, you can tell them, but, you know, drag up for auditions. And I did try it a few times, and I just started having panic attacks. I couldn't sing. <laughs> you know, I just felt mm. like a... I love being in costume, but that does feel a very big difference from being in costume when everyone knows who you are. Yeah as opposed to pretending to be cis to try and get through to an audition panel. Um, and I just guess it's that thing where every day, every moment where you're singing, you feel that impact of being othered and being gendered in a way that often has nothing to do or very little to do with your internal state. And I think there are similarities there. I think we don't have to have the same experiences to be in solidarity. But I think so much of studying misogyny in music, whether that's against trans people of all genders or specifically against cis women, is about the impact of coercive gendering and the impact of coercive misogyny. Mm. Um, so I think that really gave me a sense of uh, relationship with Strozzi. And so you, know, you build this imaginary relationship with the mm. composer you work with. But I think certainly I ended up transferring a lot of my own rage onto, you know, and certainly the ways that I've been treated misogynistically and transphobically um, into sort of reading representations of how she's been treated in so many misogynistic ways. There, there was, you know, there was a lot going on there, mm. which I tried to investigate because I, I really do not approve of researchers who pretend to be neutral. I don't think it's honest. Also, my own experience with, with voices mm. is it kind of it's singing can be the most liberating thing, and um, but it can also be most damning thing yeah. as well it really it can mm. it can be the thing often that puts you at danger or you know I, um, I mean and I think we can do it I think we can listen to voices and not gender coercively I, you know something which I found very interesting in the research was the way with which androgyny in vocal sound is dealt with in musicology as so very frequently it's linked to ideas of deception it's linked to ideas of falsehood and you know, oh, you tried, oh, darling, you tried, but you couldn't fool me. And it's, mm. it's so many transphobic cultural sort of expressions that, that make their way out there. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And yet, Strozzi gave me back a sense of virtuosity. 
you know, and that made me love her even more, mm. you know, I, it was the first moment as a singer where I'd been on stage, it was singing the Strozzi Lamento, uh, Sul Rodano Severo, which is this amazing batshit monodrama in which the ghost of Henri Saint Mars returns from beyond the grave to encounter the, the king of France, who it's all very hinted that was his lover. Mm. He's very beautiful. His milky white breast is overflowing with the blood that pours from his violet lips. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's all like, my king, your only, your only error was to love me too much. And yet as your arm held me close, the whisperers came behind us and they, the jealousy targeted me. It's, and it's all, I mean, it's so nice. It's 15 minutes long. You can't make this stuff up. Yeah, can it's you? so good. And you have to play the narrator and then you have to play the ghost. And you, literally it comes in with like a rage of thunder and it's like, oh God, send the ghost. She <laughs> writes in brackets. It's the best thing. Um, so I was performing this um, with an early music ensemble and I was feeling like, oh God, you know, oh, am I going to be good enough? Am I going to be good enough? Uh, and I'd just done Ariana's Lament at Monteverdi. Mm. And then this batshit Strozzi and I was standing there on the stage performing it. I was like, I'm good enough. I mean, if I say you're kind of trans royalty oh, in Jesus. classical music, <laughs> well, I, I'd say you're a, a big deal. Mm. Um, well, that's and... very kind of you to say, but honestly, I think, I think everyone is a big deal. And I'm not trying to be funny saying that. Like, <laughs> anyone in classical music who is in any way outside of the quote-unquote norm it's hard enough if you are quote-unquote norm. I mean, I think visibility is a really interesting word because it, it's used so much as a buzzword in both sort of positive and negative ways. So mm. we'll talk about, you know, that there'll be trans day of visibility and you'll always have like these two concurrent um, conversations going on, one of which is often a lot of well-meaning people, but often people outside of the conversation going, amazing, amazing, we've got more visibility, it's so great. And often then people with intimate knowledge of violence and transphobic and particularly transmisogynistic race is a very dangerous and problematic term. Mm. And I think for me it always comes down to with visibility without power is useless, but visibility plus power is what we need. What I worry with classical music at the moment, it does feel that there has been in the last six months or maybe the last year, uh, a point at which the more mainstream classical music organizations and, and media have gone, wow, trans people exist, and we can include them. Um, and I sound cynical, and I realize I do. I, it upsets me that, it, that it's certainly not that they didn't know we existed, because if you go and look at sort of lots of trans musicians in music who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, or Wendy Carlos just celebrated her 80th birthday, you know, people have been here and they have a lot to tell you, us, about what they experience. So I think claiming ignorance and claiming that trans is a new thing is in and of itself difficult and dangerous. Uh, and yet I am still very pleased because if, if we are having this moment, hopefully we will get hired more, we will get wages, we will be able to keep doing our jobs. Um, but I think that level of visibility, if it doesn't come with agency and authority and power, is ultimately not necessarily helpful. So it's not, it may help to pay the bills a little bit to be cast in one role or to, to get one commission um, because it's Pride Month. But if the underlying structures and the underlying cis-sexist and misogynistic systems are not changing, we become an add-on, we don't become integral and we still face huge numbers of problems. 
uh, one of which at that point then becomes exploitation and being sort of brought out in a pinkwashing way. Mm-hmm. And I think it behooves us as performers and researchers both to always keep asking, what am I in service of here? What am I strengthening? What am I critiquing? You know, And, and also maybe just a link slightly to Strutzi, that kind mm. of exceptional woman thing. Oh, God, I think yeah. with any sort of minority, we're so... It's so easy to be kind of like... I mean, to, to name someone, Lucia Lucas has mm. just made her E&O debut, mm. which is incredible, and she's exactly. amazing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, you kind of want to know about the trans person at the back of the violas, or, you know, the, exactly. pers- the trans person on the door, or and the lighting director or something. And mm-hmm. one of the things I found so interesting, um, you know, thinking of Lucia and with the, with the press that sort of came around that was then I got a number of messages from trans musicians that I know who actually had made sort of different or, or similar debuts, but it had been either ignored or they weren't considered trans enough, or, or you know, there's all kinds of stuff going on there. And, you know, please, I'm not attacking Lucia here at no, all. No. She's absolutely amazing. But I do think that the cis media and the cis framing of that as exceptional, as an oddity, um, doesn't do justice to, to the number of people working in all fields of music. I mean, I was in this, like, I, can we can we do this? But I love your research. Your research is so interesting. And the, you know, the, oh, wow. the, seminar, the talk that you gave was so, oh, so cool. So what, what are you up to next? Like, what, Gosh. is that an appropriate thing to No, with? no, no. Um, so at, at the moment, um, so I've just finished my master's um, and I looked at the place of trans and gender non-conforming identities in classical music, where we're creating the spaces and how we're not creating the spaces. And it's something that I'd like to do more mm. research on, maybe more specifically about uh, trans feminine voices mm. and um, how trans feminine artists, singers especially, use their voice, mm. don't use their voice, use other voices, mm. alter their voices. But at the moment I'm enjoying not being an institution <laughs> yeah, and you know playing 10,000 Handel Messiahs so mm. you know <laughs> long may the 10,000 Handel Messiahs exactly ring. yes pays my rent <laughs> thank you so much yeah lovely to chat lovely. to you lovely to too <laughs> thank you George Since we recorded this interview, CN found out that they had passed their PhD Viva. Their book, Trans Like Me, is published by Virago, and they have another gender history book in the pipeline. If you want to hear more of their music, they've released three independent crowdfunded albums. Ashes, Ether, and Come Home are all available via iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify. The clip in the middle was La Riamata da Chiamava by Barbara Strozzi, performed by Ursula Zare, featuring CN Lester with soprano Sarah Dacey, harpist Eileen Henry, and Tony Carr on the Fiorbo. 
The group specialises in early music by women composers. It gives me great pleasure to announce that Bent Notes is now supported by the Torch Graduate Projects Grant at the University of Oxford. This means that we're able to produce an episode every single month now, so please keep a lookout for more content from us soon. The study group is having a queer forum day on Friday the 3rd of April at the University of York. It's totally free to attend, so make sure you save the date, there'll be more information coming out about that soon. In the meantime, please leave a comment and tell us what you thought about this episode. Subscribe wherever you're listening, like LGBTQ Plus Music Study Group on Facebook, follow at LGBTQ Music SG on Twitter, and visit www.lgbtqmusicstudygroup.com. Bent Notes is produced by the LGBTQ Plus Music Study Group. We're supported by the British Forum for Ethnomusicology, the Royal Musical Association, the Society for Musical Analysis, and the Society for Musicology in Ireland.